Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Cam Buckner. For those of you in Chicago, you might recognize this name as he is one of the candidates running for mayor on February 28th. Cam grew up on Chicago's South Side and got his bachelor's degree at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and his law degree from DePaul University. His previous experiences include working as an aide for Senator Dick Durbin and working for the Chicago Cubs focusing on neighborhood relations. Currently, he serves as a Democratic member of the Illinois House of Representatives from the 26th District. Cam defines himself as a self-styled progressive Democrat. In this interview, Cam and I talk about topics such as education, mental health, his plan to combat the rise in crime within the city, and how he plans on keeping big businesses in Chicago. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you live in Chicago, make sure you vote on February 28th. Cam, thank you so much for joining me. I know you are a very busy man leading up to February 28th. And why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and we'll dive into your story after that. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for your time, Mallory, and thanks for doing this. Uh, My name is Cam Buckner. I am a son of Chicago, born and raised here in this city. I'm a father, a husband, an attorney. Um, I spent the last four years as an Illinois State Representative. Uh, in the House of Reps down in Springfield. So I want to be a mayor to lead Chicago. I don't want to be mayor of Chicago. I want to be mayor for Chicago. Well, thank you so much. And so Cam, leading up to this conversation, I obviously I did some research and I realized that you and I are both Illini grads. Yes. And we talked about how there's a point, I think, in any individual's life uh, that goes to college when you leave home and you're in a new place and it can be a little bit of interesting journey, especially for those playing sports at a Big yeah. Ten school or anywhere. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, it was huge for me, Mallory. Um, you know, I I got to uh, Champaign uh, right after my 18th birthday. Um, I was a very young man uh, that wasn't very disciplined just from an academic standpoint. Uh, and so to be able to to be thrown right into the academic rigor of uh, a, a school like the University of Illinois, and then on top of that, have all the time, physical and mental constraints uh, of preparing um, for the football season as a as a Big Ten college athlete. Uh, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in, and there were times that I thought I, I uh, would not make uh, the entire four year journey. But uh, I'm so grateful that I had uh, people and friends who had been through that journey before. Um, I had tremendous classmates who I w- was able to connect with. Um, to help through the academic pieces of it. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of the fact that I was able to get it done. But uh, it was it was tough. It was taxing for sure. Looking at your previous experience, you have worked for some of the big power players in Illinois politics. You were a aide to Senator Dick Durbin in D.C. You worked and were appointed by former Governor Bruce Rauner to the Board of Trustees at Chicago State University. And obviously, as you're gearing up for this election and deciding to throw your name into the ring for becoming mayor of Chicago, what was that experience like going to D.C., working on the Hill for Senator Durbin? It was a a heck of an experience. I was 20 years old, I believe, when I first got to Washington, uh, and I had never really been around politics in, in any real significant way. Uh, but uh, here I find myself in the seat of power in the nation's capital. 
working uh, with uh, Senator Durbin and getting a chance to spend time uh, with some of the, I think, you know, the giants of, of, of politics, people uh, like Ted Kennedy were, was still alive. And I, I got a chance to get to know him and, and to work with him. Uh, Barack Obama at that point was uh, in his first or second year as a U.S. Senator. Um, and many uh, of us who knew him from Chicago saw the trajectory happening and, and to watch uh, kind of how his history unfolded uh, right there in front of our eyes were, were huge. But there were also some really huge things that were um, up in front of Congress at that point, right? There was a, a war in Afghanistan and a war in Iraq. Uh, there were issues uh, around gay marriage and stem cell research and a lot of conversations that were being had um, at the federal level. And so to be in the middle of all that and have a front row seat for all that amazing American history, uh, I'll never forget it. And it has helped shape me and make me who I am today. So I was going to actually ask you about Obama because both your parents grew up in the South and came up during the Great Migration. And as an individual of color, what was that like for you seeing Obama get not only the nomination, but win it as a Black man coming from Chicago? I'm sure you could relate to him on some levels that I know I couldn't, but what did that mean for you? It was tremendous to watch. Um, and when you look at it, I think you hit the nail on the head for, from a contextual standpoint. Um, my, my mother, I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. She lived in the town that was next door to where Emmett Till was murdered and lynched in 1955, which was part of the reason that my mother, my grandparents packed up the car and, and drove to Chicago. Uh, when they saw that young boy uh, be brutalized like that, they, they packed their girls up and left. Um, and uh, to think about that, to think, to think about the fact that my mother, uh, the school that the first school that she went to was actually titled Drew Colored School, right? Um, so to to think about that, and then to see someone who uh, I had known for a while, I think I first met um, President Obama uh, when I was about eleven or twelve years old. Um, to see him climb through the ranks and uh, to watch America really uh, hold hands in a in a way that was um, incredible to break to break barriers and to make history. Uh, it was amazing for me to watch. And I think uh, even to this day, I probably still take it for granted because I was so close to it. Um, but uh, the, the great thing, and I, I have this conversation with folks all the time, the great thing about what we learned in 2008 and through the Obama presidency, um, especially in, compared, in comparison to what my, my parents experienced in segregationist Jim, Jim Crow America, um, is that uh, for me and, and for folks in, in our um, generation, uh, Barack Obama was the first black president, but for my son, he'll just happen to be a president that happened to be black. Um, and, and that, to me, speaks volumes of the, the promise of what this country can be. Absolutely. When we were speaking beforehand and I asked you, do you always want to get into politics? You mentioned how your grandmother loved Harold Washington. And yeah. it was so interesting because earlier today I was recording a different interview with a different podcast guest and they brought him up because they were friends and that he actually got to know him really well. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, Cam's going to be so excited because you mentioned this. It's just yeah. weird parallels, but yeah. talk about that experience growing up, because I don't think anyone ever says, you know what, I'm going to be mayor. That's the job I really want. I want to have a headache for the next however many years and feel the weight of a city on me. But you always kind of repulled to that. You know, one of my earliest memories uh, as a young man uh, was being about two and a half, three years old uh, and going downtown to City Hall early, early, early one morning. I remember the sun wasn't quite up yet uh, with my mother, my father and my grandmother uh, to um, view Harold Washington's body. 
uh, as it laid in state there at, at City Hall. Uh, and I remember how broken up my family uh, was about his death. And to me, there was a question about, you know, whether Harold Washington was a family member of ours, uh, because, you know, my family was so moved by him. And so that really is what caused me to start looking more into politics to see what mayors were, what mayors did, and how politics can help people at the grassroots level. Uh, and it's really, really cool and kind of appropriate that, you know, 50 years later, I actually represent the same state representative district that Harold Washington did when he first became a politician. Uh, and so uh, it's been a really important piece of my professional work. And like any good politician, you go to law school, you got to understand the law in order to create it, defend it, and I yep. guess define it. What was that experience like going to law school? Was it something you knew you had to kind of go through in order to really be able to have a fair chance at politics? Or was it something you like were drawn to? I'll say this, I, I, at a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and so it was something that I had talked about since I was probably five or six years old. Um, and when the opportunity came to move on it, I, I did. But uh, it didn't take me very long uh, in law school to realize that I didn't want to be a traditional lawyer and kind of practice at a firm and, and litigate. Uh, however, I knew that it would be important uh, for me to get this legal training in order to, as you say, write the law and to define the law. Um, and make the law. I thought that that was going to be important for me. But I had a tremendous law school experience. I went to DePaul University College of Law, and I went during a really interesting time in my life. I was still working at the U.S. Senate, uh, and I was going to school at nighttime. I was uh, making a very small amount of money at the Senate. I was still living at my parents' house in their basement, commuting. And my typical day was 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, in the Senate office, uh, 6 p.m. to 9.30 p.m., in class, 10 o'clock p.m. to about 11.30 or 12 p.m. in the library. And then I would uh, go from about midnight to three in the morning as I was a bouncer at a club downtown uh, during the weekday. Uh, I was going, burning a candle on both ends as I was, you know, trying to make ends meet and, uh, you know, taking the red line back and forth around the city, making this all happen. Uh, but I'm, I'm so grateful today uh, for that experience because it really helped uh, mold me. It's funny, another parallel with us is I also went to DePaul for grad school, but I did my MBA and I was working my nine to five job and then class 530 to 10 and then homework, work. I wasn't working in a club, but I would wake up early to get my workout in. But I think those years where you are really grinding and showing grit define who we are. And for any young listeners hearing this interview, I think those times where you're just putting a hundred percent of effort in really is worth the payoff. It's hard when you're in it. And those years of those long hours can be draining. But when you look back and you think to yourself like, wow, how did I manage to do that? Yeah. But I, but I did it. And then any other thing that comes up in your life or challenge that shows up, you know, you can handle it because you've handled way worse. Do you feel yeah. like that too? I, I do. And listen, it, it really, um, it gives you the grit, determination, and also it, it makes um, the times that you would normally think are tough seem not so bad, right? When, when you got something to go back to and look at and say, hey, um, I made it through this so I can make it through the next thing. And so uh, I, I embrace it. I'm so happy that I got that experience. 
So you've worked in community and neighborhood initiatives. I know that you worked in neighborhood relations for the Cubs, which I thought was interesting because I would think where you grew up, you might've been more of a White Sox fan here, but I mean, <laughs> we, we got to support. We're not, you know, playing yep. favorites, both teams. Yep. They're from Chicago. What I thought was so interesting is you had the experience on the Hill then you came back to Chicago and really helped with the community efforts within that neighborhood in Wrigleyville. After that, you ran for the House of Representatives and you were elected to represent the 26th district in Illinois, starting in January of 2019. So 2019, things are going well. Everything's politics as usual, no pun intended. Yeah. But then we come to 2020. What was that experience like being in political like not only the climate, but you represent a district, you represent people who are suffering, losing jobs, people are getting sick, PPE, where, what's happening, where's it going, all the different news. How did you not only maintain sanity, but show up for those who voted for you? Yeah, it was, it was a remarkable time, Mallory. I mean, we, we were watching the world as we knew it uh, just change completely. Um, right. And, and no one seemed to have answers on what was next. And people were dying um, and there was no um, real understanding of, of how we should eradicate and how we could eradicate this this virus. Um, so it was it was mass chaos. And one story that I often tell folks is that the, the Sunday that the governor put forth the stay at home order, I mean, the rumor was out that the order was coming. Uh, I knew it to be true because I had got a little bit of information beforehand, obviously. Um, but I didn't know how long it was going to be. I didn't know what it meant. Um and I went to the grocery store uh, to get just a few things to make it through the next week or two. Uh, and I started off with a small hand basket. I ended up with a big cart with a lot of stuff in it. Uh, and I, as I was checking out, there was a gentleman who's a Vietnam uh, uh, Vietnam veteran who stopped me and he, he said, hey, you're my state rep, aren't you? I said, yes, sir, I am. I thanked him for, for his service. And he goes, what's going on with this with this pandemic? And I said, I don't know, but I don't think you should panic. I think everything's going to be okay. Uh, and he looked at my grocery cart and he goes, I know you know more than I do. And so if you got that much food and you're telling me not to panic, you're not being truthful, right? And uh, it was at that moment I realized that, you know, leadership presents itself in many different ways. But part of being a leader is being able to uh, show a strong, steady hand to people and let them know it's going to be okay. And people will watch not just what you say, but what you do. Right. And while I wasn't lying to him because I did not know anything, uh, my actions showed differently. Uh, and so um, that was something that I kept really close to me. You know, I said early on in this pandemic that I didn't think COVID would break us. I thought we were too strong to be broken by a virus. But I, what I did believe is that COVID would shine a light on us and show us what, what was already broken, uh, what was broken in our politics and our systems and our priorities. And I think we've seen that. Uh, but it was a really tough time to try to maneuver through. Absolutely. I mean, this podcast came out of those tough times where I just could not get over how people treat other people, how people look and only see the differences between us versus taking the time listening to one story and realizing like, yeah, you and I look different, different backgrounds, but hey, we both went to the same school. Hey, right. we both had the same kind of experiences. You're able to level set and be like, yeah, I I understand you now. Yeah. We, during that time, and I would say even more so now, don't listen. There's no kindness. What scares me about politics is how divided we are to the point where people stick to the party versus like the issues or 
are you a good person or are you leading with compassion or empathy or treating people like people? So I want to definitely get into what happened on May 12th, 2022, when you decided to announce your run for mayor. Being a mayor in Chicago is interesting for a long time. Uh, Even the dead used to help elect our mayors, (laughs) but I think we've gone past that, thankfully. I don't know who wakes up one day and goes, I want this job. It seems like a headache to me, to be honest. But I guess what was keeping you up at night where you decided I'm willing to take this on and also live with all the bullshit that comes along with it, the negative ads, the attacking your character. You have to have some thick skin to get through that. But what kept you up at night to decide this was what you wanted to do? Yeah. So very simply, I talk a lot about being uh, a son of Chicago, someone who grew up in this city. My dad was a law enforcement officer here. My mother was a public school teacher here. I'm a public school kid. Uh, I grew up in our parks. I played in our in our schools. I played in our libraries. And, and Chicago is really important to me. And as I told you in the beginning, Mallory, Chicago was the place that my grandparents came to escape the horrors of the South in the 1950s. Uh, and it was a place that symbolized both safety and opportunity for them and their kids. Uh, and so now, you know, these 60 years later, as I'm raising uh, my son here on the South side, I'm nervous about the future of this city. I'm nervous about where we're going. And to me, it's not enough to just be worried about it or to talk about it. You got to be able to put your right foot in front of your left and get something done. You know, my, my, my father used to ride around with a toolbox in his car. He used to always, if he saw something loose or unscrewed or somebody's banister that he didn't know that was looking wobbly, he would go and tighten it up. And I remember asking him why. And he goes, son, if, you, if, you, if you've got the time and you got the tools, you're supposed to fix stuff when you see it broken. And, and so that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm here because I believe in this city. I believe in her people. Uh, I believe that I have the time and the tools um, and the know-how to, to get this thing done. And so uh, it is a tough job. It is one of the most thankless jobs one can think of, but I still do believe it's the greatest job in American politics. Uh, and I'm so excited to be in a conversation about leading the city. And as I've said, I don't want to be mayor of Chicago. I want to be mayor for Chicago, uh, meaning I want to work with everybody in this city to take us to a better position. I try to follow along with the politics, but sometimes I'm just like, oh, can we just learn to work as a team? The aldermen, the city council, the mayor, do we need to have one of those trust circles where we fall back and trust like our partners to catch us? Because it seems like they're very only in it for them and not thinking about the communities that maybe surround the district that they represent or thinking about the good for the city overall versus just them or how to make a dollar or how to help their friends or there's some corruption to it. I'm not saying all of it, but when you look at Chicago politics as a whole, I think it's kind of known. How are you going to work as a team? You played collegiate sports. You know what teamwork looks like. You might have maybe not got along with everyone on the team, but at the end of the day, you had a common goal. What's your plan on bringing people together? So there, there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, and I think going far is what we have to do as a city. I think it's the only appropriate way for us to move forward. A uh, part of the reason that we are in the position we're in is because we've lived in our own silos and we've um, decided to ignore the things that go on around us. As, as you said, Mallory, uh, one thing that 
I think most of us probably learned from the, from the pandemic is that uh, distance is not what separates us. Silence is. Uh, way too often we're silent and we don't have conversations with each other. Uh, and so I want to be a mayor to lead Chicago. I think there's a few ways to, to lead a city, but the most appropriate, I think, analogy for me is I want to lead this city like a symphony conductor. Uh, I don't want the oboe and the cello to sound the same. I want the oboe to sound more like itself and the cello to sound more like itself, but I want them to sound good together. Right. And you can only do that with the right direction, the right leadership. Uh, this city is beautiful because it's different. It's diverse. Whether you live in a Ukrainian village or uh, or, or uptown or, um, you know, uh, Edgewater or Inglewood, um, you have your own kind of uh, very distinct cultural space in this city. Our neighborhoods and communities uh, are, are flourishing uh, with their own kind of special sauce. Uh, and we got to find a way to elevate that and, and to bring people together and allow the city to be the, the, the true city that it is, not necessarily a melting pot. Because when, when you have melting pots, when you melt something down, it loses its, its character, right? It loses its own personal je ne sais quoi. Uh, but it's more like a salad bowl, right? You got the cucumbers, you got the tomatoes, and you want everything to work together for the betterment of the entire uh, the thing that we're working on. And so um, that is what... I will do as mayor. That will be my ethos. That will be my guiding light and my true north. And I will uh, live by it every single day. If it's all right with you, this is obviously a little bit different. I would love to dive into some topics for, for sure. us to discuss. So as a female, I have a dog. I walk him late at night. I live in the West Town area. The crime is something that is concerning. I shouldn't have to be so scared walking him at 10 o'clock at night or worried about my car getting the Cadillac converter stolen or jacked or whatever it is. It seems like since post-pandemic, it's kind of been on an uptick and you see people starting to leave Chicago. A lot of my friends are moving back to the suburbs, which I'm kind of shocked about, but they're like, I don't feel safe. And it's such a great city. There's so much to do. And I think we could grow and really become a hub for young people to come or for anyone to come. But the crime is starting to get a little scary. What do you want to do that's different than the current administration? Because I know there's been a lot of conversations around how the current administration is handling crime. Yeah. So I think the first thing is this. When you live in a city where people don't feel safe walking their dog, uh, when you live in a city uh, where when I'm in Springfield, uh, two and a half, uh, three hours from home, and I'm uh, calling home to my mother and my wife, telling them, don't go pump, pump gas tonight. Just if you got to go somewhere, Uber, and I'll do it. I'll do it when I get back to Chicago. Um, you know, that's problematic. Uh, my my mother visited, uh, visited us last night and, and I usually walk her to the car, but I, you know, I'm on higher alert now than, than normal um, when I do that. And so that is not that's that's no way for folks to live. Right. And so we've got to deal with that. I think what has become clear in this administration is that the current mayor and the current uh, CPD superintendent are not equipped to keep the people of Chicago safe. Uh, and I don't say that in a, in a mean or disparaging way. I think the numbers are the numbers. Right. Our violent crime is up and our clearance rate. The number that they use to say how many cases they, they've solved is down. That's a problem, right? And so I put forth a comprehensive, strategic criminal um, public safety, uh, criminal justice public safety plan uh, to make sure that we can actually do the work to keep Chicago and safe. That we can put put more detectives on the street to solve crimes. Um, what happening? What's happening is that um, you know people uh, are committing violent crimes over and over again and never being caught, and that's a that's a problem. So when we talk about 
I don't think the answer is completely just always more police. Obviously, I think we've got to do more when it comes to true public safety, uh, like making sure our young people have resources and doing all the root cause work. But for those of you, those folks who may be listening today who have unfortunately been on the same side of uh, a conversation that I've been on when someone from your family is unfortunately gunned down in the city or or loses their life and you're waiting for a detective to find a way to bring justice to your people uh, and they can't because they have a workload that is uh, unbearable uh, and they don't have the tools and resources to to be able to find uh, the person who did that and bring justice to your family uh, that is a, a a empty feeling right and so if we are serious about moving Chicago forward, making people safe, uh, having accountability and justice, safety and justice for all the people in this city. We've got to do the things that we know that work, right? We got to follow the data. We've got to make sure that we are coordinating with the state's attorney, with the sheriff, with the chief judge, um, and having a a true apparatus to make sure that Chicago is not just feel safe, but that we actually are safe. One aspect of being a good leader is sometimes saying, "Hey, I need some help." or I could use some support, or I'm going to bring in someone that might have a different experience or tackled this problem in their city. Are you opposed? Because it seems like the current mayor doesn't want to bring in like any federal help. And there are cities like New York, LA, Boston, Cleveland that have brought in some federal support to kind of help with the violence that's happening in the city or clean up or try to train or get different resources brought in yeah. to help take care of it. Is that something you would be willing to do? So so we, I, I, I'll say this, I think way too often that conversation gets lost in translation. And when people hear about federal health, they think about the National Guard patrolling our streets. Uh, and uh, I have an issue with that, yeah. Yeah, no, no I'm, not, I'm not talking about National Guard. You. I'm no, talking no. about like specialists who could I, help yeah, train. I get you. Yeah. yeah. No, Sorry, so, so Sorry no, for no. listeners. I'm not no, no. looking to make this into World <laughs> yeah. War kind of no. aspect. Kind and of I figured that I just, I just wanted to yeah. make sure that people, because I think sometimes people get lost in translation, and, and so I think you know that's a different conversation, which I'm you know, I'm not uh, I'm not a fan of that conversation. No. But what I do think is that there are, as I said, we've got a small number of detectives who are dealing with a big caseload, so there is help that can come in from I think the FBI, right? Specifically, we've got an issue uh, on the south and west side of Chicago with a lot of missing and murdered young uh, girls young, and women and girls. Right. And so the FBI can be helping us with that for sure. And um, then also the bodies are pulling out of Lake Michigan too. Gotta be just... able, exactly. So they should be helping us with that for sure. Um, I also, you know, one of the issues that detectives here has have is that we don't have a, our own ballistics laboratory in Chicago. And so when um, they're doing testing on, on gun residue and gun samples, they've got to send them down to, to the state police lab and, and then wait to get them back. We're the third biggest city in the country. Why can't we figure that out? And so I think the, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms can come in and help us with that. Um, then, and also, I mean, Mallory, there's some money on the federal level that can make it easier for us to solve these, these crimes as well. And so absolutely, you got to ask for help when you need it. That doesn't make sense that we're sending guns down two hours. One, that's a waste of fossil fuels and driving back and forth and all yeah. of that. But two, it's like, if you're trying to get crime solved quickly, to hopefully not have another girl murdered or someone else show up in the lake or someone else gunned down, it's adding time that you could be using to get people off the streets who are committing those crimes or release people who are falsely accused of creating a crime because, and so they're sitting, waiting to hear. My other favorite topic is education. Education's power. You're able to grow. You're able to learn. And I was actually having this conversation the other day with someone. Our educational system is so broken. And when I look at how are we 
teaching young people and the skills to help them in the future, we're not teaching about credit scores or coding or certain things that would allow people to have a better idea of ownership around like their finances or how that works so they don't get into debt. Also, we're not teaching skills that will allow them to get jobs in the future. Obviously, you're one man, we can't change the entire educational system, but what are you thinking about how to make education accessible and not only that, but beneficial for Chicago's youth? Yeah, so I think we, we've approached education the wrong way in this country entirely, and that, that has trickled down to our city level um, school districts uh, as well. We've got to have a more logical approach to curriculum uh, and the way that we prepare our young people, as you were alluding to, not just to pass a test, but to um, to win in life, right? I often um, make the comparison when it comes to legal education, right? Uh, there, are, you can you can major in pre-law in most colleges. The pre-law never prepares you for the LSAT. The LSAT never prepares you for law school. Law school never prepare, prepares you for the bar, and the bar does not prepare you for practice. And so uh, we've created all these false barriers, uh, and we call them education, but there is really not. And we've done the same thing with our young people uh, in our in our school system, and so. I've talked about reconfiguring the the curriculum and being intentional about the fact that not only are young people in Chicago competing against the young people from, you know, New Trier or Libertyville or Wisconsin or Indiana, but this is a global economy. They're competing with young people from Germany and Italy and Brazil and Russia. And we are putting our young people at a disadvantage when it comes to their counterparts globally. And so we got to do a better job of preparing them for the day that they walk out of our doors. Uh, They can be Um, uh, they can find lucrative jobs, they can actually do the work, um, and they can make us proud. Absolutely. I don't, I never use my calculus education or, you know, I think history is important. So you understand what has happened and where we're at. But when we look at the math and science aspect, other countries are kicking our ass. We are still teaching stuff that just doesn't make sense or an algorithm or a computer program can solve it for us way quicker than you can, but we're not teaching kids how to create those algorithms or the coding that would allow them to continue moving. And education is such a big component, but so are the arts. I was very fortunate. I grew up in Highland Park and every other year they had focus on the arts where they would bring in artists locally and from around the country to kind of showcase what the arts look like, because you and I both know not everyone's the same. Some people can speak, you know, chemistry and love organic chemistry or love history. Other people find their confidence and who they are in the arts. And it seems like with the shortage of funding for public schools and teachers and classrooms and resources, the arts have been cut. Yeah, I think we've we've really missed the boat when we when it comes to, um, you know, extracurricular um, and co-curricular uh, things like arts and humanities and, and music and sports as well. Um, you know, we have put them on the back burner. And I think we've missed a lot of young people, specifically in the Chicago public school system. There are young people who have dropped out uh, because they're not interested in school. I can tell you right now, I was not very interested in school as a young man. Right, I wasn't disciplined um, from an academic standpoint. And I was bored uh, very often, but it, I knew I had to have a certain GPA in order to compete on the football field. Uh, and that's what kept me interested. If not, I might not be here talking to you today, right? Uh, and so there's not a one-size-fits-all plan, but we have to have 
um, opportunities for all our young people. People talk about school choice. To me, school choice is being able to go to your neighborhood school and have a choice within that school of what you need and want to do, what the thing that is that kind of gets your passions going. And specifically in Chicago, when we've got a lot of young, young, young people who are dealing with trauma, uh, the arts are a way to deal with that trauma, um, to have some, some mental respite uh, from very stressful lives. These young people are growing up way too quickly uh, because life has given them a, a, a tough hand, right? But we have missed out, I think, on, on resource on resourcing our programs here. Um, there are piano and violin virtuosos walking around Chicago public school system who we have not put a piano or a violin in their hand. Uh, and that's a problem, specifically in a district that has a history of creating, you know, world-renowned artists. And I'll just, I'm talking about music artists today, uh, but it's, it's true for visual art and, and, and theater. Uh, but listen, the Chicago Public Schools theater and music programs created Jennifer Hudson. They created, I, I, I was going to say, I think you're related to one of those. This is my cousin. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a hometown shout out. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I'm pretty sure the Grammy and Oscar winner <laughs> that right. you're she's talking a, she's about. A, she's an EGOT now. She's got an yes. uh, Emmy and a Tony too. But, you know, Shaka Khan, right? Mm -hmm. um, the the famous uh, R&B group Earth, Wind & Fire were graduates of Richard Crane High School on the west side of Chicago. Um, Curtis Mayfield is one of my favorite artists of all time, went to Wells High School uh, on the north side of Chicago. And so, listen, we've, we've got a great history in this city, and I, I refuse to believe that Jennifer and Shaka and Earth, Wind & Fire are the last of that. We, we've got those young people in our programs today. We just got to foster it and give them the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And you also talked about mental health. It's a buzzword. People are saying it, but it's really, I think, different when politicians say this is a problem. It is an epidemic. And young people are suffering at such a huge rate that we haven't seen before. I think a new study that just recently came out that three out of five adolescent girls are depressed. That's crazy to me, but we're not putting those resources behind it because a lot of people say, oh, they'll get over it. It's adolescence. It's this. But when you're not giving those resources, and especially in neighborhoods that are underfunded and don't have access to healthcare, how are we going to be able to manage that, do you think, in Chicago? We've got to wrap our hands around and our brains around the, the mental and behavior ill health issues uh, in this city. Uh, frankly, we were not collectively okay before the pandemic. Uh, and now three years uh, into this pandemic next month, we're worse off than we were before and the resources aren't there. Uh, the fact that we've got so many young girls who find themselves depressed, the fact that we have so many young men uh, who find themselves with pent up anger and aggression, uh, and, and very often that aggression turns into violent tendencies that you know make them and, and their communities less safe. Uh, we have to be able to have a true conversation with some real solutions on how we deal with that. And, and it has to be all encompassing. One thing I've talked about is making sure that we uh, not just reopen the mental health clinics, but we find a way to make sure that our young people uh, have the resources and the ability and the opportunity to, to use them uh, as well. Uh, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about what I think this mayor has done wrong. But I think one thing the Life Administration has missed the boat on is the mental health facilities, right? That the mayor has refused to, to reopen the public mental health clinics. She has only said that the private clinics should be the ones that are doing the work. Uh, but honestly, in a city like Chicago, with the issues that we have, saying that we cannot have both public uh, mental health facilities and private facilities doing the work is like saying we can't have both libraries and bookstores. 
uh, I think it's a false choice. I also think you are telling people that are in a lower income bracket that need those public resources that you don't matter because we're not going to open these up. And that's me saying it. That's not you saying it. So I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but but it's really scary, especially when those who are in lower economic conditions and environments do need those resources and they're not able to get it. And it's just so inhumane to have people who have schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, and any other mental health issues suffer because they can't afford to actually get covered or the medication, or maybe they can afford medication for one month, but not the next month. No one should have to worry about that. Now we're talking about all these things we want to do. And if my father was here, he would say, that sounds great, but how are you going to pay pay for it? it. (laughs) And you see big businesses leaving Chicago because of high property taxes and rents going up. I live in a one bedroom and my landlord sent letters out to everyone apologizing because his real estate taxes went from 13,000 to 32,000. So rent has been increasing. And he's like, I've been fighting it with lawyers. I think that Chicagoans should be able to get a one bedroom apartment without going bankrupt. Because if you're putting all your money towards rent, we can't go to restaurants. We can't go out. We're not putting money back into the city. What's your plan to get big businesses to stay in Chicago? Yeah, I think the first thing you've got to do uh, is come to the table as a collaborator, uh, not from a confrontational standpoint. You have to, whether it's Boeing or the Bears, Right. You got to have conversations with these business leaders uh, about why they're important to the fabric of the city and not make them feel like they are are able to leave. Right. Um, And and you've got to approach it from a way. I know there's a lot of conversation today about specific companies. And I read a bunch of articles uh, this afternoon where the basically the tagline was, you know, how do you make them stay? And I think that that's the wrong approach about making them stay. We should get them to want to stay. And and it shouldn't be a punishment. It it should be some pride instilled in in being in the city. Uh, I've labeled uh, and and carried myself as the only person in this race who's a pro-business progressive. Um, Listen, I believe in in the social justice movement and the social justice issues that many progressives fight for. Uh, But I also believe that we can find a way to make the economy work for our city. You mentioned something very early on in in this interview about growing Chicago and making it attractive for young people to want to come here and people to want to come here. We've got to grow Chicago. That is our only way forward from a financial standpoint. Um, And so I've put together a plan that helps Chicago move to 3 million people uh, by the year 2030. That means we have to grow by 1.7 to 2.2%. Um, every year from now to 2030, which is the, which is the next census, putting us at a 12% increase over the next seven years to get us to a better spot from a population standpoint. Uh, when Chicago's bigger, Chicago's better. Uh, and we have to be able to uh, welcome uh, companies here. When I, when, I, when I talk about being a welcoming city, I mean for the people who live here. I mean, for asylum seekers, I mean, for folks who are going to come here because of climate change issues around the country. And I mean, for businesses as well. Let's be welcoming to everybody. We can do it. We just need the right leadership to push us in that direction. Absolutely. And I think it's kind of scary. A lot of people have seen big businesses leaving Chicago and the current administration is just like, okay, I would think you'd want to go and say, what can we do to get you to stay? What do you need from us? The Bears just bought that big piece of land. And I'm like, how can the Chicago Bears, that's a historic team, yeah. be leaving? I'm sorry, get on your knees and be like, please, like, what can I do to help? Like, let's talk. How can we make this work? What do you need? I think that when we get to a certain point, people stop listening and that intentional listening skill 
before you take office, I think everyone should have to take a course on it or something like because it. we're not really listening to one another. We just go in and say, well, this is what I want. And that's what you want. You would have failed the negotiation class if you yeah. didn't understand how to listen to one another. So if yeah. you get elected, maybe every politician should go I through like that. I, you know? I like it. I like it. I like it. What keeps you up at night? What do you want to accomplish as the election's nearing? It's a big pool of people. There's been some mud throwing, which I think is kind of below the belt. You shouldn't have to talk poorly about someone else to make yourself look better, but I'm not running these campaigns. But I guess what keeps you up at night? You know, we talk a lot in this election about who's going to vote for who, but we haven't had a real conversation about voter turnout. Uh, The truth of the matter is, anywhere between 60 and 70% of Chicagoans are not going to vote. And those are just the people who are actually registered. Um, and so for me, it's disheartening that and, and concerning that, you know, only 30 to 35% of us are going to be the ones who make the decision on who leads this city. And that keeps me up at night because I know there are so many people who think that it doesn't matter who the mayor is because their life is going to be tough no matter what. Uh, and that, that you know, that makes me sad. Uh, it's, it's a little unnerving. Um, and it's a symbol of how bad things have gotten in many communities. I remember when the pandemic first hit and people were saying, listen, the numbers are, are, are very clear. People are dying. How can folks see this and not be serious about it? And in many communities like the one I live in and like Austin and like North Lawndale and like Roseland, a pandemic, a invisible virus that you know creeps up in your nose and kills you is way less believable or way less scary than in the lives that many people live on a normal basis, where they're dodging bullets, where they're trying to find food for their kids, where they're trying to find a way to make ends meet. Um, that's the real pandemic that was gripping them. And so COVID uh, to them was a boogeyman that, that had uh, no real face, all right? And so um, that is what keeps me up at night. My grandfather once told me that uh, a parent can only be as happy as their saddest child. And Chicago's got a lot of sad children. And so I think about them every night. I think about them every day. I think about the opportunities that I had as a young man growing up um, that my son has now um, in the short 14 months that he's been on, on, on earth. And I want to make sure that we can build a city uh, that all of us have the ability uh, to, to live and to thrive and to flourish. I often say, I want to build a Chicago where where you live does not determine if you live. I think that's a perfect way to end this episode. I wish you the best of luck on February 28th. I think that you understand probably from a different vantage point than a lot of other candidates, like what it's like growing up in the city. And you seem to have a good grasp on what the issues are and how to fix them or how to go about trying to fix them, which I think is the key. You're willing to try. versus just saying, well, no, it's not going to work. That's right. I end every episode with the final three questions. The first question is, if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would it be? Um, So there's something that I read three or four times a day. I recite it throughout the day to myself. It is actually a a piece of of a speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave in 1910, I think April 23rd, 1910 in Paris, um, and the speech is called Citizen in the Republic, Citizenship in a Republic. But the famous part of this speech is, is known as the man in the arena uh, portion, uh, where um, President Roosevelt basically talks about it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the woman 
who is actually in the arena, uh, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends themselves in a worthy cause, who at best in the end knows the triumph of high achievement, and at worst, if they fail, they fail while daring greatly, so that their place shall never be with those cold, cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. I love it. Are you a fan of Benet Brown too? I am. I am. I love that quote. I think that is so fitting because I'm sure people are asking you, why are you doing this? Why would you do this? You're crazy to do this. And, but yet they complain all the time. It's like, you can't complain if you're not willing to do anything. You lose that right. That's right. That's right. So absolutely. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? Uh, Hands down, December 1st, 2022. um, It was the day that our son was born. Um, It's the day I became a father, uh, and it was really special to me for a number of reasons, but uh, just about seven months before then, I lost my father, uh, right? So it was like a a circle of life definitely was there, uh, and I just remember um, the joy that I felt uh, on that day, and I'll I'll bottle it up and keep it with me for the rest of my life, but I I will relive that day a million times. That's a beautiful memory, and I'm sorry about your dad. I know how tough that can be. Yeah. The final question is, if you had a theme song that walked in every time you entered a room, which song would you choose? Um, so it would probably be uh, a song called Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Um, uh, to me, it, it symbolizes uh, strength through through adversity. Um, it's freedom music to me, right? It's, it's, a, it's a song that was really a soundtrack in many ways to the the civil rights movement of the 60s uh, in this country and uh, being a Chicago homer, uh, Curtis Mayfield being a Chicago kid uh, from the northwest side of the city. It's, it hits me home for that one, too. So and there's some great is not it's one of those songs where there's not just great vocals. The instrumentation is almost better than the, than the actual singing itself. So great trombones and trumpets. It's a fantastic song. So I'm going to go ahead and add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist so listeners can listen to it while they're walking to the polls on election day and kind of get all motivated to make a good decision for Chicago's future. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been so enjoyable. I've enjoyed getting to chat with you. And I just have to do a quick shout out to my nail guy, Apple. His Instagram is Nails by Apple because he has been such a supporter of the podcast and your wife goes to the same guy and that's how we got connected. And so I just had to give Apple a little bit of a shout out. Thanks, Apple. Thanks for putting us together. I wish you the best of luck, Cam. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mallory. You have a great weekend.